How many of you have ever seen or read Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice? Anybody? Yeah, neither have I. <clears throat> At least not until um, this week. And uh, I read sort of synopses of what the story is about. But uh, in that play, it's one of Shakespeare's um, more famous comedies. In that sense, it ends on a higher note. But it is not only a comedy, it's a love story uh, between a woman named Portia and um, a man named Basenio. Um, but the, the story itself culminates in a courtroom scene. And that is because uh, in that story, a, a debt is incurred uh, by a man named Antonio. And it is a debt incurred from a moneylender whose name is Shylock. And Shylock has his reasons for resentments against people like Antonio. Such that when he does this contract with Antonio, he says, I'll lend you the money. But if you do not pay, I will get my pound of flesh from you. And by pound of flesh, he's not talking metaphorically. He's talking about Antonio's death. And Antonio is such a desperate strait that he says, I'll do it. Because he needs the money. And as you would have it, the story unfolds. And Antonio cannot pay the debt. And so in the, the culminating scene of the whole story, Shylock drags Antonio into court to let justice be done in accordance with the law, in accordance with the contract that he had signed with Antonio. He's not asking for anything he's not entitled to. And in that scene, disguised as a male barrister, the woman protagonist of the play, Portia, she comes in and she makes a case to Shylock the lender, that he might take an alternative, make an alternative decision, an alternative choice. That he might, instead of pursuing justice, pursue something else. And what she asks of him in that case turns out to be one of the most famous speeches Shakespeare ever wrote, up there with to be or not to be. And there, disguised as a barrister, Portia says this to Shylock. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes this mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. She's saying to Shylock, who rightfully deserves Entitlement to justice. She says, oh, there's something greater even than justice. And that thing is mercy. That it is in fact twice blessed. It blesses him that receives it, but it also blesses him that gives it. And it is that quality of leadership that makes that leader most highly esteemed. That is her case to him. A case that we will continue to line out as we go through this sermon. But we ask ourselves the question, why does a speech like that endure? Why are we still talking about that scene from 500 years later? Why, is, why are there multiple renditions of that scene? You go on YouTube and just type in the quality of mercy and you will find everybody from the lady that played Edith in Downton Abbey doing it to Barney Fife in an episode of Andy Griffith. I kid you not. Well, you know, as they say, Andy, the quality of mercy is not strained. Oh, it's in there. He does that. Why does that story endure? Why does this idea of mercy endure? If you're just joining us, we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus' arguably most famous and controversial words in Matthew 5 through 7. And we've taken it on good authority that those words outline for us essentially the highest good, the better way. And as an introduction to that large sermon, Jesus rattles out these things that we know as Beatitudes. These inner dispositions of the heart that reflect a profile of somebody who has come to discover something, who's been awakened to that better way, who's been awakened to the glory of God and has found that place that we've called otherwise as flourishing. And here in the Beatitudes, Jesus is going to shift to what we might otherwise call a virtue. And that virtue is mercy. And just as we've asked ourselves, why does, why does the quality of mercy from Shakespeare's play, why does that endure? Why, why would Jesus make mercy such a, a prominent thing here at the beginning of his sermon? That's what we want to ask ourselves. And we're going to listen in this beatitude again to figure out what does he mean by mercy? And why, why is that so important? And then if we're going to think of mercy as a virtue, which are usually the things that are hard for us, why is mercy so hard? Why is that not our first instinct? And last of all, we have to ask ourselves, what is our strength for it ever becoming a first instinct to us? What must compel it for it to be both true and lasting? That's our task. And we're going to get all that from one sentence. And so if you're able to stand, we're going to listen to that beatitude. And I've asked my daughter to come up and read Matthew 5, 7. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Not bad. Mercy, like most of the words we've been focusing on in these Beatitudes, are words that we still use, kind of. But not much. They still feel like old words. Uh, mercy me. Oh, mercy. Lord, have mercy. Right? Those are those still in our vocabulary. We still talk about it. But um, it's not as central as Jesus would make it out to here. And yet we have to recover that vocabulary if we're going to understand our Lord and what he has for us in this sermon. Because mercy is a big idea. And as you've heard, just like last week in righteousness, mercy threads its way through the entirety of Scripture. So we've got to understand what he means by it. What is in Jesus' mind when he says, blessed are those who are merciful? If we listen to that word, I think you and I, if we flesh it out in Scripture, mercy kind of talks about two broad categories of expression. The first, when we say, oh, Lord, have mercy, right? What does that mean? It's not a throwaway phrase. It's just, just not, it's not just sort of a token idea. It's this idea that a, a desperate, a desperate desire for relief. A desperate desire for assistance with all due haste. That's, that's one broad category of what is in Jesus's mind when he says, blessed are the merciful of those who bring that assistance. And if you have been in the church for any length of time, or if you have never been in the church, you've probably still heard it. Or if you were once in the church and you hated the church and now you're, total, you're back for some reason, you are still probably familiar with the most potent example of Jesus' teaching on mercy. It's in a parable. It's in Luke chapter 10, and it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Now, we don't have time to flesh out the broad contours of that parable, but we do know that that parable began with a question put before Jesus. And that question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on with a parable. He tells a story. And the reason he chooses a Samaritan is because the Samaritans were the people that Israelites hated. And he chooses a Samaritan to demonstrate the point of his parable because for one, he's trying to cut across all those racial and religious prejudices that Israel is, was susceptible to. But most importantly, he's pulling in a Samaritan to show us all that if you want to discuss what is true neighborliness, hearkening back to when Leviticus first articulates the idea of love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus would have us believe that true neighborliness involves mercy. Mercy that the Good Samaritan demonstrated at great cost and inconvenience to himself. That's mercy. Coming to a person in desperate need and showing themselves great willingness to be poured out like a drink offering, to be spared no expense for the good of another. That's mercy. That's a quality of mercy. You got to you got to narrow in, though, on what we mean by mercy here, because sometimes we think of mercy as just sort of pure pity. Like you just feel sorry for them. Like there's this little emotional pang that you feel. And we all feel it when we see somebody in need. A hurt puppy. Oh, pity. But mercy is something deeper. It's something richer. It's something more costly. And so Henry Nowen, he kind of helps us to to flesh out the difference between mere pity and and mercy. When he says, uh, showing mercy is different from having pity. Pity connotes distance, even looking down upon. When a beggar asks for money and you give him something out of pity, you're not showing mercy. Mercy comes from a compassionate heart. It comes from a desire to be an equal. Jesus didn't look down on us. He became one of us and he felt deeply with us. If we are honest with ourselves, most of the time, our expressions of mercy are more for our good than the good of the one unto whom we're rendering some sort of assistance. It's more to kind of assuage the little unsettled feeling in our souls, kind of placate our conscience, than it really is to bring comfort unto the one who is in need. But true mercy is that which sees the other in need as an equal. And that which seeks to enter into their condition such that you are, to borrow a word, present. Present to them with as much fullness as possible. That's A quality of mercy. And that's one broad category of it. And you are already familiar with that. You've heard that before. It's why in this church, we have these folks called deacons and deaconesses. Whose gig is not simply to undertake the act and the the granting of mercy unto any number of people within and without the church. But to involve us all in it. That's their responsibility. Not only to spearhead, but to coordinate us all into that work. That's the act of mercy. That's what they do. And you're familiar with that category. It's not the only category of mercy, though, that might be in Jesus' mind. The other category has to do not so much with giving something or offering something as it is has to do with withholding something, of keeping something back. And by that we mean what Portia meant to Shylock rather than justice or judgment, mercy. Withholding the judgment and justice that one properly should receive 
in accordance with every code and law and contract one might have given or subscribed and submitted themselves unto. The alternative, the other category of mercy, is withholding justice and instead extending mercy. And again, to flesh that out or to illustrate what it looks like, we we hearken back to a parable that we've already referred to in these Beatitudes, the the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, where a Pharisee shows up to the temple and rattles off all of his reasons for why God should commend his righteousness. And then this other tax collector who in that day was reviled and hated because he was essentially a victim of Stockholm syndrome, you know, living for the good of his captor and his own self. And he walks in, can't even look his eyes toward heaven. And he says, have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's that one, that latter one, the one with rather weepy eyes who goes home to his house justified. Because Jesus would say it is the one who understands their need of mercy, who is the one who will find God's favor. That is a quality of mercy, and that is what Jesus preaches. But it is also what Jesus practices. You just have to follow his life. It wasn't a parable. It was a real moment when Jesus encounters the wee little man Zacchaeus, a tax collector himself who had made his living defrauding his countrymen at great exorbitant cost and it is jesus who shows him mercy it is jesus who goes to that woman at the well who thinks that she can only find love through a series of serial marriages who would be properly and in the eyes of the law looked down upon and condemned and it is jesus who shows her mercy it is the prostitute who crashes the party where Jesus is being hosted by Pharisees who everybody looks at her saying, who let her in? And it's Jesus who shows her mercy. So whether he is showing everyone the mercy of assistance, whether it's to the blind or to the lame or the invalid, or it is the mercy of acceptance to those who are liable to condemnation, Jesus practices what he preaches. That's mercy. That's the quality of mercy, and it was not strained. It was not coerced from him. It came from him like the gentle rain. So if you want to distill down what mercy is from those two categories, all you got to say is this. It is extending good to them, a good that they are in need of, but a good that they can lay no claim to. Extending good to them, a good that they're in need of, but a good that they can lay no claim to. That's mercy. And the question is, why does, why does Jesus make it such a pivotal thing here? Like, why is it so much, why is it front-loaded in the Sermon on the Mount? Why, why is he making such a big deal out of mercy? And the, the, the simple answer is, just think about two things. You and God. And you'll understand why mercy is such a big deal to him. So, just think about you. This will not be hard for you. <clears throat> Look. You know, and I know, that life can turn on a dime. And by that, all sorts of tragic things can happen in a heartbeat. And what then? You're desperately in need of mercy. It's got to come from somewhere. If you could reproduce it yourself, you would, but you can't. That's why you're in need of mercy. Just given the world you're in, mercy's a big deal because we're all going to need it. And it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when and how much. Given your world, mercy's a big deal. But it's also a big deal given the skin you're in. 
And by that I mean, you will never graduate from your need for others to look past your frailties and your failures. Um, For instance, marriage. There will never be a day when the person you covenant yourself in love to will have to stop looking past your, your failures and your frailties. They will never have to not accept you, notwithstanding all the things that you do to violate their trust in you. That's why it might be a good reason for you to go to the conference this weekend, because you need to be reminded, if ever there was an opportunity to practice the discipline and virtue of mercy, it's in a marriage. Now, it's true of every relationship, not just marriages, friendships, you know, working relationships, all of us are in need of mercy. And that too is not a matter of if, but of when and to what degree. So all you can do is just think about yourself for a little while. And you know why Jesus is making a big deal about mercy. But then if you'll just think a little bit about God for a second. Portia will continue her case to Shylock in that speech and the merchant of Venice to say, yeah, kings are to be lauded for all of their power. But you know what's even greater than their power? Their expression of mercy. And she says their throne, their throne is adorned by their expression of mercy. And she says, because it's an attribute of God. And you know what? That's true, true. And you've already heard it. Sandra read you the text from Exodus. In Exodus 3, you know, God says, Moses, you're going to go represent to the people who I am and, and represent to Pharaoh. And Moses says, um, who do I tell them sent me? And he says, tell them I am sent you. And then a little later, as she read in Exodus 33, Jesus, or rather, huh, the Lord elaborates on his own character by saying, I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's who I am. That's central to his life, central to his character. That's it. That's him. Mercy's a big deal because mercy's at the center of who he is. Such that long after Moses is done in Egypt, Isaiah proclaims over Israel when it says, Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. God glorifies himself by manifesting his mercy to those upon whom he will have mercy. So the reason Jesus is harping on mercy, if you just think about you and you think about God, mercy's front and center, which is the irony of it. And by that, I mean this. Given how much you and I are in need of mercy in both categories and how basic and central mercy is to God, given that, isn't it ironic that that is the one thing that you and I have the hardest time extending to others? We may want it at the drop of a hat. We may seek it out and cry for it at every turn. And yet when it comes to us extending it, we're kind of like, eh, can I pray about it? Why is it hard? Why is mercy hard? Well, for one thing, if this weekend hasn't confirmed to us all one thing, we love to judge and throw and pile on condemnation upon somebody making a drastically stupid choice. We dig it. Social media wouldn't exist without it. We love virtue signaling. We love showing everybody how mad we are at something. We love to pile on. Our brains are wired that way, I'm sorry to say. 
Mercy does not become a first instinct. The opportunity to throw stones, that's a great instinct. Mercy's hard that way. You know what? Jesus knew that. He told another parable in Matthew 18. You know the story. There's a, um, um, a servant who is in enormous, exorbitant debt to his Lord. And he comes before his Lord and he says, have mercy on me. I have no way to repay. And the Lord says, I, I cancel the debt for you. And he goes, oh, thank you for your mercy. And then that dude goes home. And then another like servant beneath him says, oh, have mercy on me. I kind of owe you five bucks. And this guy says, you're, are you kidding me? Right. So he'll gladly receive cancellation of a greater debt, but he will not extend cancellation of a smaller debt because that's our condition. Why is it so hard? Why does that happen to us? Many of you, or some of you may have heard of this um, experiment that was performed back in the 1970s at Princeton Theological Seminary. They uh, invited a bunch of seminary students um, to conduct in a survey. And the deal was, they were going to be called upon to give a speech. And half the group was going to be given the assignment of um, make a speech about a seminary job. And the other half was going to be to prepare a speech on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the organizers of the study's hypothesis was, maybe you're more likely to be merciful if you've got a teaching on mercy in your head at the time. That was the hypothesis. Well, the way they set it up was they invited all these students to one building And they said, all right, you're going to go to this other building and do your talk. And to half of the students, they said, you need to get there in about half an hour. So just, you know, kind of make your way when you can. But to the other half, they said, oh, sorry, we mistook the time. You're late. Hurry. Okay. So some people are walking amiably. Others are running. Well, the organizers of the test put somebody in their path, somebody they set up to act bent over, hunching, groaning, looking pitiful, in need of some sort of assistance. And the question was, if you had to give a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan, would you be more likely to stop for that help? Awful psychologists, right? (laughs) How did it turn out? Were those who were to give the talk on the parable more likely to stop? Turns out, what mostly influenced whether you would stop was how much of a hurry you were in. If you were thought you were late and in a hurry and what you were doing was so important, sorry, dude, I got things to do. Whereas if you were just kind of making your way, the groaning kind of stops you. The idea was, if you think you're so busy and you think you're so important, you're more less likely to really be of any assistance to somebody who's really in a desperate need. That's the way the the project worked out. If you think you're so important, you won't give it. To put it more bluntly, I'll allow Paul David Tripp to speak to that question, which, let's just be honest, that's what Freddie Mercury would look like had he lived. (laughs) Tell me I'm wrong, right? But Paul Tripp says this, Yeah. Okay. Now we're done. Um, We're simply not that good at mercy because we tend to see ourselves as more deserving than the poor and needy to the degree that you forget the mercy you've been given. It is easier for you to not give mercy to others. Uh, Simple point. If you think you're more deserving, you really won't extend it. And if you think um, others aren't worthy of it or that you really haven't been a beneficiary of mercy, then you're kind of like not equipped or inclined to go in that direction. That's why it's hard. It's hard that way. We think that way. 
We do that. And not only is it hard, it is easier to be religious than to be merciful. Now, that's a loaded phrase, and you could take that in any 14 different directions. But there's a moment, I take that from something Jesus says twice later, later in Matthew's gospel. He, twice in Matthew 9 and Matthew 12, he quotes the prophet Hosea, who says this in Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. When Hosea first says that unto wanton Israel, Hosea's agony was that Israel was more interested in performing the religious duties of the law than in seeking the knowledge in the heart of the Lord. They were really more content with doing everything that they found in the law, but really didn't care about having the heart of God. And so Jesus grabs that same idea and says it twice, both times to the Pharisees and both times in the context of the Pharisees looking down on the sinners that Jesus is hanging out with. And Jesus is saying, you know, I really wish you would learn what Hosea meant. I really wish you would be more interested in demonstrating the quality of God's heart than in fulfilling all of the religious duties to which you are so well-versed. It's easier to be religious than it is to be merciful. It's easier to listen to a podcast um, than to be merciful. It's easier to preach a sermon than it is to actually live out a world in mercy. That's why mercy is hard. Mercy is hard in all sorts of ways. Rosaria Butterfield is a name you may know. She's written a bunch about hospitality of late, of welcoming the stranger into your midst. And she's just written a book um, about her experiences of allowing her neighborhood to kind of have almost free reign in her home. Okay, high bar, yeah. But she speaks very candidly about the place of hospitality in her life and what she's learned. And, and she says these most bracing words in an earlier book she wrote, actually. We see hospitality as an investment in community. Anything worth doing will take time and cost you something. We noticed as our attention focused more on families and children that many people in our community protect themselves from inconvenience as though inconvenience is deadly, we have decided that we are not inconvenienced by inconvenience. We are sure the Good Samaritan had other plans that fateful day. Our plans are not sacred. I'm betting none of you want to hear that right now. Um, truth be told, I don't want to hear that right now, even though I can't really argue with her argument. Now, to be sure, there are plenty of us, even in this room, who have, there's absolutely no way you could render assistance to that degree at the drop of a hat. You, you've got stuff on your plate, 24-7, 365, that renders you incapable of kind of doing what she does. And there is no shame in that attention. Things happen. That's the way we life. We're all in different seasons. And yet, what is true for some of us in that way is not true for all of us. We will be inconvenienced in order to incarnate what it means to be merciful. But our plans are not sacred. And if you think that's hard, imagine the other category of mercy we've talked about. The one that sort of looks past all of the blunders of another, all of the wanton offenses, and instead chooses to demonstrate mercy. And Genesis 33 is a wonderful moment of that. It's the story of the reunion of Jacob and Esau. And if you know that story, uh, Jacob and mom, shall we say, conspired against Esau to deprive Esau of his birthright and then to deprive Esau 
by subterfuge of his blessing from his blind father. Now that's a brother you want. They part their separate ways. They're estranged. And then Jacob hears that Esau's on his way and he's got 400 people with him. And Jacob's thinking, I'm going to die. Esau's going to go postal on me. We're done. So what he does, he gathers all of his family together, gathers all of his servants. And then Jacob gathers all of these resources of his to present as some sort of tribute unto Esau. And they get closer and they get closer and they get closer. And Jacob was wondering, Esau's going to have my head. And Jacob walks up to Esau. And you know what Esau does? He runs and falls upon the neck of his brother and kisses him and weeps. Because of all the years they have been separated. And in that moment, Jacob presents him all of this stuff. And Esau looks at him like, what are you doing? What is this? And Jacob says, I, I wanted to present this to you that I might find favor in your sight. And Esau looks at him and like, dude, I have enough. This is not necessary. And Jacob looks at his brother and says, I have seen as if in your face, the face of God. For I have sought your acceptance and you have granted me that acceptance. Jacob thought he had to buy that acceptance. Esau just granted it. And Esau had every right to show his brother justice. And instead he extended to him mercy. Oh, how fun would that be for you, Esau? It is hard. No doubt about it. I want to show you a clip, show you what mercy looks like, but also to show you how it's hard. Now, this clip is from that storyline that you may have heard us reference before. It's on NBC. It's called This Is Us. Yeah. Ooh, murmur. It's about a, a young family, Jack and Rebecca. They have three children, all born on the same day. One of those children is adopted, brought into the nursery on that day from a fire captain, and they bring that child home on that day. Well, Jack, the father, has a brother. His name is Nikki. And they are bosom buddies as kids. But as they get older, Nikki becomes like a hellion. Makes a lot of dumb choices. And Jack is continually there to kind of rescue him and protect him. They reach adult age. And Nikki gets drafted to go to Vietnam. He goes. And the whole family is thinking, he'll never get home. Jack enlists to go to Vietnam to kind of whatever he can do to look over his brother and make sure he gets home. And while he's there, Jack reunites with Nikki in Vietnam and Nikki demonstrates his bigotry, his hatred of the Vietnamese, whether they are military or not. And Jack is continually trying to rescue him from his own stupid choices. And then a moment happens, an awful moment happens that leads, that, that Nikki is involved in that leads to the death of a Vietnamese child. And in that moment, Jack washes his hands of his brother. He says, I am done with you. And from that point forward, Jack tells everybody he knows that his brother, Nicky, died in Vietnam. Fifteen years later, he gets a phone call, he gets a note from his brother, Nicky, saying, can we talk? And he keeps getting these note cards, and Jack's doing his best to keep from everybody knowing that he's alive. And so Jack finally drives three hours into western Pennsylvania to visit his brother. And in this moment, I'm going to show you two scenes where Jack and Nikki are together and Nikki's trying to build a bridge again and Jack will have resistance. And then another scene is from 15 years later after Jack has died and his three children have just learned that Nikki is still alive. 
and they go to hear from a very older Nikki just what their father struggled with. Watch this struggle and how difficult it is to be one who is merciful. That's Nikki. Jack, no. Nikki, no. No, I... I don't want to go back there. I want to leave that right where it is. You don't have to talk, just... Listen. I've relived that day so many times in my head. I, I, I didn't mean for that boy, Nikki. Just let me say, stop, stop. I'm begging you, stop. Okay, no more. And, and stop, stop sending letters to my house. I've got a wife and a family. I moved on. I wish I was wired differently, but I'm not, okay? I, I, I can't just turn back. Good seat, Nick. Did I ruin your life? No. Nicky, I... I have a good life. Your old man, he saw everything in black and white, no gray. That's, that's why he had two lives. Uh, the one before I ruined everything, one after. And he, he walked away from the first life. And once Jack picked a direction he never changed course you know, he put the war behind him he, he never looked back I wasn't so lucky
Jack is at a literal and figurative crossroads. Does he turn left to go to Bradford and extend mercy to Nikki and maybe figure out what really happened and restore what was lost, whatever the locusts had eaten, for it to flourish again? Or does he just continue on with his life and head back to his wonderful family in Pittsburgh? And he chooses to go back. Because mercy is hard. I can show you wonderful illustrations in a show, and that's beautiful in its own right. But please don't hear me saying that it's just going to be easy for us to show mercy, especially when we have been merciful in so many ways for so many years. Mercy is hard. It always will be. 30 years later, now Jack's kids know about Nikki. And his, and his, and his son Kevin has a memory of something that Jack had said when he was a little boy, such that it kindles a choice of his own. Now that these three kids have gone to visit an older Nikki there in a difficult place in his trailer home back in that city in Pennsylvania. So listen to this recollection and what it kindles in a Kevin when he is older. I'm going to go with you. I like you better than all of them. Well, you shouldn't because they're pretty great. And trust me, there's plenty of your old man gets wrong. Yeah, right. Oh, I do. Hey, look, you, you got to watch out for that, bud, because a kid can either repeat the mistakes of his old man or he corrects them. It's hard to explain, but... Uh... Hey, chip in. Help your mom. That's no way to live, huh? All messed up, living alone for 40-some-odd years in a leaky sardine can. I can't leave him like that, dude. Nikki's most desperate hour, the son of Jack comes to do what Jack himself would not do or in that moment could not do. He makes a different choice. He, he goes to Bradford than to go home to Pittsburgh. He extends to him mercy. Mercy of love, mercy of trying to bring assistance, mercy to try to bring an end to the estrangement that existed between Nikki and the rest of the family to, to restore what had been lost. And we, we see that scene and we got to go, What's beneath that? Like, why is he going there? It's not complicated. Compassion is surely there. I, I wouldn't want to be in that condition that he is. I would, I would want to be treated in this way. I would want someone to show me mercy if I were in that place of despair. That's motivating it. 
the longing for him to be part of the family again. That's, that's also motivating. That's what's motivating Kevin's mercy to his dead father's brother. What has to compel us to mercy? Surely those things are good candidates. But the most interesting thing that Jesus says in this beatitude is what he says at the end of it. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. They shall receive it. And when we take that phrase on its face, we go, okay, is this an if-then statement? If I do this, then I get that? Is it a quid pro quo thing? I I kind of... conjure up the quality of mercy in my heart and then God will show me mercy in good time. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is this one big test? And if I don't pass the test of mercy, I shouldn't expect the the, the benefit of mercy later. Is that what he's saying? One thing is for sure we know when Jesus says blessed are the merciful, he's not saying don't worry about being merciful. You know, sort of a luxury item. Don't worry about it. We know he's not saying that. And we also know that he is saying that the quality of mercy in our heart is somehow bound up with the, 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 recip- the receiving of mercy at some future day, uh, a mercy we can never dream of. But remember, everybody, as I've said with every one of these Beatitudes every week, whatever Jesus says in this sermon must always be seen in the shadow of his cross. Because at his cross, Jesus was denied mercy. Mercy was withheld from him. At a moment when he most needed assistance, he got none of it. At a moment when he should have been vindicated for his innocence, he got condemnation by sinful men. He was denied mercy so that you and I might receive it. He was treated as one who was a sinner so that we might be treated as one who was a son or a daughter of God. He was denied mercy so that we might receive the mercy of forgiveness and receive the mercy of his spirit and receive the mercy of assistance in our time of desperate need. That is the gospel. And that has to be what compels us to it. Yes, the quality of mercy within our heart is bound up with an anticipation of a mercy that we can never even imagine. But that quality of mercy that lives in us That is all resting on an awareness of Jesus' mercy to us at the cross and in his life, his death, his resurrection, and the giving of his spirit. That's our compulsion. That's how it works. What is our compulsion? Why must it be that? That's what Shylock asks of Portia when she says, would you consider mercy? And he says, by what compulsion? Why should I do that? And she says this. Though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. You want to live by justice? Fine. You will not know his belongingness. If you would want to know the belongingness of the Lord and the forgiveness of sin and the union with him in all good things, then you must plead for one thing, not justice, but mercy. That is our compulsion to any deeds of mercy because pity and compassion only go so far and the desire to bring reconciled family together will only go so far. It's the only thing stronger than all of our reasons not to show it. 
What then do we do with this? Maybe there's somebody in this room who does not believe in the mercy of the Lord in Jesus. Who is out to seek your own mercy. Who is out to find your own way and your own highest good. I am asking you to believe in this mercy. That it is true and inexhaustible and more steadfast than you could ever fathom. If you would stop seeking to find your own mercy, stop seeking to find your own good, I would call you to believe upon this mercy and be baptized into his name and identify with his person. That's what this moment calls you to if that moment is yours. But if you are already believing in that, then I do think that this text would ask us all, myself included, to ask ourselves, from whom are we withholding mercy that it would be their good for us to extend it. To be sure, there are plenty of moments when, as Tim Keller puts it, it is a mercy to withhold mercy. There are moments like that. And those moments are true, and we have to be able to discern the two. But there are plenty of other moments in which the only reason we're withholding mercy is not for their good, but for their pain. Who might you be needing to extend mercy to is a question the call comes out to us for. And then if I might just add one really itty-bitty application. Go on our website. It itself is a mercy because it's a beauty. But click on ministries and then click on mercy. And on that page, there's a button. And that button says give help. Click there. The diaconate of our body is taking an inventory. Some of you already know this. Some of you already have done this. Click there and share with us what you do well or would do at all that might be of assistance to somebody else in some unforeseen moment. Click there. Share that. Let us know how you can be of assistance. Because again, our deacons and deaconesses, they, they spearhead efforts of mercy, but it's not all on their shoulders. They're here to involve us all. Click there. Share with us what you do that could be used. And then when the deacons and deaconesses call us, step up. It's our work. It's body work. It's Christian work. And why is it that we do it? Why do we give ourselves to mercy? Why must we be compelled by the mercy of the Lord to us? Because the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Amen.